Welcome to Flip the Script Podcast War Stories. So if you don't know yet, by now, um, I've decided to change up the podcast a little bit. So I'm going to be going in a couple different directions. If you've been watching or listening over the last couple uh, weeks since we had the Afghanistan withdrawal, I've been getting into covering some of the news in the Middle East and Afghanistan. So I decided to dedicate a whole section or a whole videos podcast to the news. And then also I will be doing whole episodes geared toward war stories where I read books and lessons on war on go through actual war stories, right? That's what the title is, war stories. And I'm also going to be doing the warrior mindset videos on YouTube. So you'll get the, on the podcast platform. So you'll get the news and also the war stories. And then you have to go to YouTube to get the warrior mindset videos. Um, so I'm trying some things out. I was thinking about maybe opening up, starting new channels for these, but you know I'm a relatively new channel anyway, so I don't really have that traction. Uh, but we'll see what happens in the future. We'll see how this goes. So today we're going to be covering war stories. All right, we're going to go back into Holly McKay's book, Only Cry for the Living, and we're going to be covering a section entitled The Star Spangled Love from December 2014. So uh, if you're new to the channel, Holly McKay, she wrote a book entitled Only Cry for the Living, which is her memoirs from covering the ISIS wars in Syria and Iraq, um, starting from 2014 up until, I think it was like 2017, 2018 that she was over there. Um, I could be wrong on the dates, but uh, so she she's very detailed. I highly suggest getting this book, and I'm only going to read small portions of it over time. Uh, definitely check that out. There's a lot of information in there. Sorry, so we're going to get into it. We're going to kick it off, flip the script, podcast, war stories. <clears throat> Start Spangled Love, December 2014. The notion of giving thanks to the red, white, and blue was not lost on the people of Kurdistan. The bald eagle, old glory, the almighty American dollar were king in the Kurdish part of Iraq. Peddled with American flags, U.S. military gear was prized, and the locals spoke glowingly of the nation they credited with removing Saddam Hussein. The dictator whose heavy hand so often came down on the minority group clustered into the northern region. Imagine if America didn't exist, said accountant Kurdo Amin Aga, whose home was outfitted with the Israeli, American, and Kurdistan flags, and who wears a U.S. Army shirt and a Navy SEAL watch, Without America, the world would be run by China or Iran. With dewy eyes, he turned to me. In earnest, America represents freedom, he stressed. Our dream is to be eternally allied to America. Throughout the enclave, chiseled within Iraq, the U.S. passport gets its bearer waved through security check, ushered through ministry doors, and served complimentary tea with broad smiles. The Kurdish region was principally run by the independent Kurdish regional government, the KRG, and its president. Mossad Barzani, as opposed to being under the thumb of the Iraqi central government, had been marketed to the world as the other Iraq, relatively safe and economically sound wedge of the country, which welcomed the Westerners with open arms. Everywhere, hints of red, white, and blue could be bought and sold. One store tucked away in the local bazaar, owned by a middle-aged man by the name of Zarzad, featured only pro-American merchandise and U.S. military-inspired clothing. 
It's just beautiful, Zarzad said softly as he reverently unflurred a giant flag, holding it up with profound respect and beaming from the ear to ear. I asked for a photo. Taxis in Kurdistan often featured seat covers starring the iconic bald eagle pattern and array of household electronic and fashion items from screwdrivers to pots and pans to guitars, phone covers, hat shirts, shoes, and bags are adorned in patterns of the stars and stripe. Local police and military forces proudly supported American brand 511 tactical gear and clothing. An American flag patch was often sewn on for added oomph. It was not uncommon to have your drink served in U.S. flag etched on the side of a glass or to see American presidential memorabilia behind the workplace of the locals. A sizable number of official rooms displayed some sort of official certificate proving connection between the Kurdish territory and the United States. Yeah, so the Kurds are big American supporters. They love the United States. Um, you know, they are basically living in Iraq autonomously, right? So they consider themselves the other Iraq and not a part of the Iraq central government. They want to be independent. They want to be their own country. Um, you know, they, they border those other countries. Turkey is a big enemy of the Kurds. So they they got they're fighting on all different fronts, right? They're pretty much surrounded by enemies. Um, so they really rely on the United States for support. Um, you know, so this is that part where Holly is in right now. The Kurdish-run region's sense of identity was embodied by its military, the Peshmagra. The army, battle-hardened from years of clashing with Saddam's forces, has proven to be an able force for countering ISIS when just weeks earlier they had encroached on the Kurdish borderline and threatened to swoop in on its terrain. Kurdish fighters had continued to clash vehemently with ISIS throughout northern Iraq and over the Euphrates into the Kurdish dominion of neighboring Syria, with its fiercest fighting taking place outside the Kurdish-controlled territory, just 60 miles east of Ebro, an ancient city which was protected by American no-fly zones during Operation Iraqi Freedom. At Mosul, the country's second largest city, which was now under ISIS's firm grip in response to Iraq's invasion and the annexation of Kuwait. While the missions commanded by President George H.W. Bush did not topple Saddam, served notice to the Kurds who were still reeling from the notion that the dictator would use chemical weapons against its own citizen, he had fallen into the crosshairs of the United States. U.S. military forces ousted the Ba'ath Party leader in 2003. On the second to last day of 2006, Iraqi tribunal installed by the U.S.-backed interim government brought him to ultimate justice. A grainy video surfaced of the once feared and hollowed man standing tall as a noose was wrapped around his neck before dropping to his death with a crack of his neck. Once Saddam was gone, the oil-rich Kurdish region began to prosper. Kurds openly expressed their hope that the United States would help them become completely independent country, although that was never a component of the U.S. policy plan. When the U.S.-led airstrikes to hamper ISIS were launched in August, entire Kurdish neighborhoods could be seen waving American flags in the streets, with many even making American Veterans Day this past November. We follow American news. Like shootings and hurricanes, we care a lot what happens to the people of the United States. Most Kurds showed ample respect for President Obama, but it was Bush's name that generated a larger salute. Some were even prepared to get behind potential candidate Jeb Bush in the 2016 presidential elections. The first Bush made no secret that he hated Saddam. The second Bush finished him off, Kurdo added. 
and the third will be the one to give Kurdistan our independence. To him, and many like him, there was beauty in hatred. There was a psychological victory in hate, a deep-rooted and powerful emotion that their dictator, their suppressor, would never be able to take away, except in death. And Kurdo was not going to let the dead dictator dissolve their dream of independence. So if you could imagine, put yourself in the Kurds' point of view. They're living in a country. They basically have their own culture. They consider themselves separate from the country that they're living in. And they're having the main government's will being imposed on them. You know, they've been living a certain way for a long time, hundreds of years, maybe even thousands of years. And now they've been living in peace. But you had Saddam, the dictator, who came in and they're always clashing. They're fighting them off. They're basically fighting off attacks from the Iraqi government all the time. And now, you know, you had America come in and take out the dictator that was oppressing them. So, yeah, they loved America, but they wanted to be independent. They wanted to be totally independent. That was never a part of the U.S.'s foreign policy plan. So they thought that, you know, keep going with the Bushes. They'll, you know, they'll make us independent. I doubt Jeb Bush would have done that. He doesn't really uh, seem to have that type of fight in him. Uh, but, you know, the Kurds have got to stand on their own. I don't know what the answer is there for the Kurds. Um, Iraq doesn't really get anything from technically owning that land. Uh, the Kurds run it. It's basically their own country. So there is really no benefit to Iraq, Syria, Iran, any of those surrounding countries to trying to hold on to that territory. So, you know, it would be, make sense for them to be on their own. But, Power struggles, egos, whatever the whatever the reason is, uh, they don't want Kurdistan to be independent. They want to be under their control. They want to take it over. All right, so we're gonna continue. Let's flip the script. So it says the concept of an independent Kurdistan was extremely controversial. With the ethnic population spread across the territory for three nations outside of Iraq, Turkey, Syria, and Iran, the prospect of redrawing its borders of all four countries to create a new state was viewed by critics as destabilizing. Even the notion of independence for the Kurdish-administered area of northern Iraq was opposed by not only neighboring countries, but by the international community, including the Obama administration. That's interesting. Nonetheless, many Kurds remained steadfastly pro-American. One local, even noted Kurdish authorities, get scared when they see an American passport. Nobody wants to upset an American, the local explained. They worry they might have said or done something wrong. Kurds, who as a group are overwhelmingly Muslim, also portrayed themselves as more religiously tolerant. Right now, right now I'm working with Muslim, Yazidis, Christians, we're all working together, said one high-ranking KRG official. They celebrate occasions together. It is something very beautiful. That December, the U.S. announced that combined joint task force operation Inherent Resolve as the official U.S.-led coalition of countries coming together to defeat the fast plumbing ISIS and the American footprint was once again growing in the country that it had so abruptly left. The internal passion for the population held for America in 2014 would only flourish as the Peshmerga continued to battle, often alongside American advisors in the ensuing years. But eventually, as I come to compile with memos that make up this book, the U.S. flags would be taken down and Kurdistan would be weighed down by another sense of betrayal. It was hard to imagine that soon a handful of disgruntled Kurds would burn the U.S. flag in the street. While that lasted only a few days, the sense of hopeless 
energy has not since faltered. Yeah, so that, I mean, that makes sense. If you're, you know, you, you're a Kurd and you're in, you envision America as being your savior, the one that's going to bring you independence and they turn your back on you. You could be frustrated. I would be frustrated too. It's a tricky, sticky situation over there. Nothing's ever a black and white, right? That's one of the things we always have to understand, especially when inter- dealing with international and, and especially in the Middle East. Nothing is ever black and white. Nothing is either is always just one way. There's always gray areas. Things are always a little bit not what they seem, right? So it's you know we have to be careful on passing judgment on decisions that are made, and um, you know even though if they don't make sense at the time, things are not always black and white. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they're not. It's a complicated thing over here, right? So we're gonna really read a little bit more. Let's go into the second year of ISIS, 2015. It says the Ferris wheels don't turn. Is the tent to call home. Right, so it says, Once barren patches of empty dust cr- across Iraq had been dramatically transferred by countless numbers of sprawling, fast-falling tent camps. Sometimes those patches of earth contained so many tents that they stretched out into the groove of the horizon beyond what the naked eye could see. It was impossible to fathom how many lives had been upended, so many camps had been set up, that they all started to look and feel the same. They all carried a kind of energy that was hopelessness as it was desperate. Under a glare of harsh sunshine in a land where life began, the image of barbed wire displacement camps bobbing with stuffy caravans had become a routine sight. Shamefully, I had started to lose track of which camp was which and who was who. I had grown tired of talking to official after official. I had grown tired of trying to piece together the conflict with the words of Sudi politicians and executives. As a journalist, it doesn't take long to recognize that officials speak in rarely true representation of the crumbling reality outside air-conditioned offices. It is almost always the testimony of those in the thick of the suffering who paint the most accurate picture. I wanted to spend more time with those ordinary supervisors who languished on those patches of dust, those who could provide hauntingly raw first-hand account of what happened to them and those they loved. Those were the stories I wanted to tell. I wanted to immortalize with words. It was the seemingly endless chase to understand how, why such hatred had reared its ugly head. Why had it pounded a country that had already withstood so much? Every person's sad story is their own story, unique and powerful. But a year into the ISIS invasion, it felt as though every sad story had also become one giant sad story. We can hear and see the pain, but we can never really truly understand it other than comprehending it as universal. Nobody was spared. Nobody would ever be able to return to the life that they had before the black flag. In passing one camp on the peripheral of Ebro, I spontaneously motioned to a taxi driver to stop. Even with a press pass, going into an established camp was never a straightforward process. Entrance continued, tea calls, permission letters, approval, safety checks, more calls, and ensuing questions. Those tasked with operating the facility, whose lives now centered out on the portable caravan at front, typically came across as deeply skeptical of journalists. For them, it was the quagmire of wanting to publicize the agony of the situation in light up televisions and computer screens across the globe to encourage donors to step up. But at the same time, 
They also were aware that each camp was a rendition of living purgatory of those stuffed inside. The operators worried that when conditions were exposed, that they had to face the backlash of questions about bloated bureaucracies and how money was being spent. The operators always ran the risk that a journalist's visit could spawn an outpouring of negative press about the horrid conditions and lack of resources amplified by articles peppered with quotes from the complaining people. There was also a genuine concern about identifying or photographing people at the camp and how it could endanger the family members, given that almost everyone had loved ones still living under ISIS control, whether they had not made it out in time or had not wanted to leave. Would they be retaliated against for their loved ones speaking out against the group? Would they be the next to be executed during Friday prayers or dumped into a filthy cell to lie in for days on end? Would the only reprieve come when they were hung from the ceiling by their ankles and electrocuted during interrogation set? So this is a uh, this is a tough situation to be in. If you're living in Iraq or Syria under ISIS control and you know you're living in this camp, you know, cuz you fled, you're living in this camp and you want to speak out about the horrors that are going on, but then you have family members that are still under ISIS control and you're worried about being uh, photographed, you're worried about being on TV to make your family being a target because ISIS will come in and either torture them or if they get a hold of you, torture you. You know, So this is a very tough situation that they're under. I've said before that fear, like the ISIS, these terrorist organizations, they do horrific things to control the people, right? And makes them so fearful that they don't even think about speaking out or fighting back against them because of what could happen to their family. Because, you know, it's one thing if you fight back and they come after you, you know, because maybe we'd be able to handle that. But once they get come after your family, your actions are now responsible for what happens to your family. Can you imagine being a father and going to fight against ISIS or to take a stand against what's going on? And then they get a hold of your children and your wife. And they do horrific things to them. What kind of burden that's going to carry on side of you. It's unimaginable. And we really need to think and put ourselves in that situation to fully comprehend the type of horrific conditions that these people were living in. And it's, you know, when you're faced with a situation of your family being hurt in front of you and you may be doing something that's not on your moral high ground, when we ask ourselves, what would we do in that situation? I've always said, you know, we always like to think that we are we we'll always do the right thing, but would we really? Listen, in the United States, we live a very sheltered life. We have no idea what the horrors of war is really like, unless you've seen it, unless you've been there, unless you've seen what is going on. In the United States, we are so far removed from that that we can't really relate. We can't even put ourselves in that situation. We haven't seen war in the United States on our own turf since the Civil War. We haven't had an enemy lay foot on the United States in over 100 years. I don't even, I'm not really sure when the last time we had foreign forces here, but not in recent memory. World War II, you had the bombing on Pearl Harbor, and then of course 9-11, but we didn't actually have an enemy country forces on our land rolling through our streets. Can you imagine what type of chaos would break out in the United States if you had Russian or Chinese tanks coming down your street? 
Now all of a sudden they're telling you what you could do and what you can't. The U.S. military is nowhere to be found. Or maybe they're fighting on your street. You have troops coming to your house and say, listen, you need, we're taking this house over. We need it as command post. Can you believe that? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine Chinese troops coming into your house and saying, you need to leave. We're taking this house as a command post. And they kick you out of your house. Or even American forces, your own country comes in and says, we need this Chinese right down. They got a stronghold on the next neighborhood over. Heavy fighting is coming from there. You need to get out of here. We need to take this house. as It's a perfect strategic spot where we could set up snipers, where we could uh, run operations out of. We need, we need your house. And we're taking over the surrounding street. They're taking this whole street over. Can you imagine that? Because that's what happens in total war. That's what happened in Iraq. House to house fighting in cities. We're taking over buildings, clearing buildings out, using them for command posts. Told all the civilians to flee. That's what happened in Europe during World War I and World War II. We have never seen that in the United States. It's not in our memory. It is so far removed from us that we can't even imagine it. But if we think that that can't happen here, we come, if we have become so complacent, and we believe that the United States is untouchable, and that, oh, we just bomb any country that tries to come over here, you are out of your mind, and you highly, highly overestimate the capabilities of your military. You're going to tell me that if China took its whole fleet of boats and planes over here, that we'd be able to stop them? You think that we would be able to stop every single ship, every single plane that China has to come over here? Not only that, let's say China comes from the West Coast. There's Russian submarines all over the place. They start bombing us. So you got ships coming from the other end. We have getting attacked on both shores. You think we'd be able to stop that? We won't be able to stop that. And we will have troops, foreign troops, on our shores, fighting on our streets. The only thing America has in its favor in that situation is that America has a Second Amendment, and we have an armed citizenship. And I think that's probably the reason why no country has invaded the United States. It's because we have the Second Amendment. All right, so I'm going to leave. I'm going to stop here. Thanks for watching. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. This is Flip the Script Podcast out.